Welcome to The Perfect Storm, a bi-weekly podcast for business executives and cybersecurity professionals. Industry veterans Michael Markulek and Matthew Webster chat with guests about the latest cyber news, threats, and trends, and how all of it impacts their businesses. Harbor Technology Group is a cybersecurity consulting firm that offers advisory services to the SMB. Harbor believes by taking a proactive rather than reactive approach to cybersecurity, business leaders can develop a cybersecurity program that will address external requirements, exceed client expectations, and ultimately take their organization to the next level. Harbor's innovative processes are based on industry standard frameworks that are tailored to meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Harbor Technology Group's The Perfect Storm podcast. Uh, Thanks for joining us. I'm really excited today to have two guests uh, joining me today um, to have an insightful conversation about zero trust. Um, First, I have Nicholas Blank. Uh, Nicholas, uh, I've known for, what, 15 minutes now? Yep, that sounds about right. Seems about right. Right. And Chris Goosen, who has also joined me, um, they'll tell a little bit about themselves, but it's a very international flavor today. So guys, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes to to talk to us and, and our listeners. Really appreciate it. Um, Chris, yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. It's super exciting to be on the other side of the of the microphone for, 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 uh, for a change. Um, so uh, my name is Chris Goosen, and uh, I think we've known each other maybe a week and 15 minutes, uh, Matt. Yeah, so, that's right. so that's, you know, that's great. Um, Chris Goosen, I'm uh, I'm actually currently in, in Sydney, Australia, and uh, I work and, and have done for uh, a little over 20 years now in the sort of Microsoft uh, ecosystem, if you will, um, predominantly in the cloud space now with Microsoft Cloud and, and, and with a sort of sharp and keen focus on um, security and security space. Um, and uh, Nick and I are old friends too. We have a podcast that we host called the Cloud Architects Podcast. And uh, Nick, over to you. Thank you, Chris. And hi, Matt. Uh, also wonderful for me to to be on the show. And now that I've known you for sixteen minutes, it's uh, it's been a, a great. <laughs> it's been a good sixteen minutes. Have really have enjoyed them. And uh, by way of introduction, I'm Nicholas Blank. I'm in Cape Town in South Africa. And I run a consulting group of companies called NB Consult. And gosh, I've been doing this for about 15 years now. But this IT thing I've been doing since 1993. Uh, yes, that means I, I, I am that old. And I uh, started my career with things like DOS and NetWare. That's before Microsoft Windows was even a thing and followed the the security journey into the cloud. We went from data center into cloud and uh, all of a sudden we had a lot more to defend. But before I speak too much about that, let me hand back to you, Matt, because I think part of the cloud journey is one of the things we, we want to talk about today. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a great jumping off point, Nicholas. So why don't, since we're really gonna focus on zero trust today, um, Nicholas, why don't you, I'm gonna do this for both of you. Um, why don't you try to define for our listeners what zero trust is and kind of what the industry is thinking about when it comes to zero trust? Certainly, we we understand that it's not a a a thing you do, a, a switch you flip. Um, 
But why don't you mm. why don't you give us your thoughts about what zero trust means for organizations? Yeah. So I'll I'll use my definition and then then Chris will give his slightly more accurate description. <laughs> for me, a zero trust is a set of principles. And it's not a methodology. It's literally a set of principles that take you into your own defensive doctrine. And the reason why I'm using these words is, is that we can refer to countries and how they choose to defend themselves against particular types of attack, or just uh, uh, generally speaking against attack. So the US, of course, has a very defined and very published defense doctrine for land, sea, and air as well as for nuclear. You, other countries have got defined doctrines uh, that will define if you attack us, what is our stance in terms of defense and counterattack? Now, zero trust is these three guiding principles that you can extrapolate into all kinds of behavior. And just very quickly, the, the principles are that we verify explicitly. It kind of goes with zero trust. I don't trust that Matt is Matt until Matt can prove who he is. Very much like when you get carded at the, the entrance to any type of event. And they say, Matt, um, I know you look old and crusty, but can you prove actually that you're old <laughs> enough to come and share the event? So that's verify explicitly. Then we have a use least privileged access. So, um, Matt, before we let you into the VIP lounge where only the big boys can drink, can you actually prove that you're old enough to drink? So, we again, we verify um, uh, explicitly and then we use the least privileged access to make sure that Matt can only get to the stuff that he's supposed to get to. So, if Matt's not allowed to get into the VIP lounge, he can't get there. And think about this in terms of your data as well. And then the third one, which is probably the most disturbing one, but is very true to life, is that we assume breach. We assume that someone is coming after our stuff, and they're either in the building already, or they're working really hard to get into the building. Now, once you assume breach, you automatically get into that thing of, well, I need to do something about that breach, either in terms of preparation or in terms of response. And that can sound very overwhelming, but actually it just means we need to start somewhere. And with that, let me hand over to you, Chris. Well, it, it's, it's always hard to follow up uh, such a perfect answer, but <laughs> um, so I think <laughs> what I want to do, what I want to do is, 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 is kind of break that down into a little mm. more sort of practical terms, right? Because, because I think ultimately that definition of zero trust is, is spot on. And we've already talked about what zero trust is not, right? It's not a product. And I, you know, I'm sure anyone listening to this now, I'm sure you have vendors knocking on your door or sending you emails trying to sell you zero trust because everyone has their spin on it and their flavor of it and, and have, have tried to sort of productize it in a way that makes sense for their business. It's not, it's not something that you, you can, you know, go to a store, go to a vendor and, and buy and, and next thing now you have zero trust. You know, obviously there are products and configurations and, and things like that that can help support um, the outcome that you're looking for from zero trust, but it is a journey and it is a, you know, I like to look at it and, and certainly the conversations I have with my customers, we, we use zero trust as a, as a, a way, a maturity matrix, if you will, a way for us to, to understand where 
along this journey, along this path, the organization is. And so if you break it up into, you know, um, various components and Microsoft does a great job of breaking up zero trust into, uh, I think, six um, sort of pillar components. And if you take, for example, something like identity, right? Um, we all understand what the utopia of identity is. And Nick was talking about verify explicitly. Um, that may mean things like using um, using MFA for connectivity and, and things like that or, or conditional access. But not everyone is at that place, right? And so it's a really, really good approach to be able to say, well, we want to we want to look at zero trust as our methodology or our doctrine. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at each component within zero trust or each component within our organization and we're going to um rank ourselves or rate ourselves or use it as a maturity matrix yeah. to see how we can get or progress along this journey and in some instances you may already be very well matured in that in that particular area right so uh from an identity perspective again for example you may already have mfa configured for every single user you may have additional controls um, for unknown access and things like that but then when it comes to data security, that may not be an area that you've actually invested in yet or an area that you've actually put any effort into, right? Um, and so if you if you use zero trust as a way to kind of rank and, and measure your maturity um, of, of these components, it helps you immediately build a really good action plan um, as to, you know, and, and roadmap as to how you can actually mature the overall security footprint and posture of, of the organization. I think you, oh, go ahead, Nicholas, you have your hand up there on the Zoom call here. Uh, I'm trying to be polite. And and so <laughs> yeah, yeah. what I want to do is if we keep this in, in, in human territory and, uh, you know, this stuff needs to make sense to a human being on a Monday morning, right? And when we explain to, to customers that you go to cloud and you take any cloud service, literally doesn't matter what it is, and you increase your attack surface because well clouds available 24 7 not just to you but also to your attackers and then if you don't do the basics of uh, chris was talking about hygiene sorry identity if we don't do the basics of identity hygiene like we don't use our favorite password like east coast winter 23 exclamation mark <laughs> which you know we trained our users to use complex passwords and therefore we've trained them to well they need to be uh rememberable rememberable is that a good word memorable it is now memorable it is now. thank you right. <laughs> so on a monday morning our users and us we need to be able to remember what these things are and then it's so easy to build a, a password spray attack while well, you can download them for free. So the stuff is democratized. Teenagers do it for fun. Companies do it for profit. Organized crime does it for profit. And nation states do it for the sake of expanding their footprint. And the landscape that's out there, and I'm not doing this, not saying this for the sake of being alarmist, but very real, is that friends don't let friends use cloud services without MFA as an example. And that's just insanely practical. Exactly, exactly. Um, so you guys have both touched on something that's really important for, for, for people to understand. I think this, anytime we're, we're, we talk in cyber InfoSec about some new tech, um, some new um, approach, 
it can be overwhelming for everyone. Mm. Uh, Zero Trust is a kind of a cool name. Um, it you know, it, there, lots of salespeople out there are using it as a buzzword to try to get people's attention. Mm. But you both have really touched on something important, which is it's it's not something that is completely foreign to organizations. There's a lot of these steps uh, mm. as part of this doctrine, the zero trust doctrine, that have been taken or that that uh, are likely to have been taken um, by an organization, whether it be enabling MFA for cloud services or all services, um, having a solid incident response plan. Um, I, I, it's it's a really important note, and maybe you guys can talk a little bit about uh, this from an experience standpoint. As people progress through this this doctrine and apply some of these uh, these ideas within zero trust, um, uh, where the the ones are that that seem to be pretty easy wins, if that makes sense, versus the ones that are a little bit more challenging as you as you try to achieve zero trust. Chris, can you can you add to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think it it does largely depend on on the organization as well and the type of uh, the type of data assets that they're trying to protect, right? Um, uh-huh. I, I would say sort of just off the top, I think the, the, the place that most folks should be looking to start is, is, is on the identity side, right? I think that, you know, we, we keep talking about MFA, um, progressing up that ladder of MFA and conditional access and hardening the security controls where you, you actually make decisions on access based on a number of factors, right? Um, so for example, if, if, if someone is coming, you know, attempting to connect from a device that is not known to the organization, but they do know their username and password, perhaps, you know, that we, we, MFA isn't enough, but perhaps we want to grant them access, but only read only. So we want to make that sort of conditional level of access. And that's sort of progressing up the, the ladder of maturity. But I think that for most organizations, a really, really um, good place to start and a very good win is is on the identity space. What I've seen um, that is a little bit more difficult is 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 on the data security side, right? Classifying data, understanding the type of data you have, and and how to protect those types of data. That's not always as easily you know done for for a lot, lot of organizations. You know, if you're Colonel Sanders and you have Seven Secrets Herbs and Spices recipe, like that, you understand what your crown jewels are, and you know that that needs to be protected. But for a lot of other organizations, it's maybe it's not that apparent. You know, I've had customers say to me, "Well, you know, we we're uh, we're in agriculture, and and if someone were to you know breach our systems, they may get the transport routes for how we ship mangoes around the world. Like big deal. You know, there might be some more important things than than maybe that, right? Um, but I think it's it's key that uh, th- there are different things that are going to apply to different organizations. I think the application landscape is another thing that is sometimes particularly challenging because a lot of organizations don't always have a handle on every application that is in use in their environment and, and who it's being used by and what it's being used for, right? Because I think um, folks can, you know, especially in the cloud, right? If if uh, OneDrive isn't working for you, you just spit up a Dropbox account. Why wouldn't you? So, uh, so, so that application right. landscape can be really difficult to, to come to grips with as well. Yep, yep, that's that's great. I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna grab something you said in there because it is a challenge that we've seen um, with our client base and as we're, we're acting as their, their CISO, this this concept of data classification or this this um, this discipline of data classification and understanding mm. data that you have is a key component of zero trust of course 
Um, but it's also a key component of just security in general. Um, yeah. Nicholas, I might be putting you on the spot here a little bit. Mm. Is there something in that world um, when it comes to data classification that tends to be a, the best strategy to take as you classify data? And I'll use an example. And I'll, speaking of the agriculture company that that Chris mentioned, yes, they may they may not have intellectual property. They're 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 only uh, business developed processes as these routes for shipping mangoes around the world, but they also have PII information of of their employees. So. How how do companies wrangle that that data classification, that data understanding, that data intelligence uh, 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 problem? I love the question because it gets really practical really quickly. If you were to take a sheet of paper and write down what will kill my company, is that my HR system? Is that my ability to invoice? Is that my email system, what would cripple my company's ability to trade and to do business? And mm -hmm. that allows you to create a risk-appropriate defense. So if you are in any kind of financial industry, then you have to be compliant to whatever that industry requires. And that means having safeguards in place for PII, as you said. So that draws a nice, neat little circle around, well, where do I have PII either for my customers or my employees? Because clearly there's fines associated if I'm in any type of regulated industry and any type of PII could leak out of my company. Then if I store intellectual property, well, where do I store it? Is it in mail? Is it in my documents? Are those documents in SharePoint? Are they in Teams? Are they in Dropbox? Are they in Box? Do I even know where these things are? And then how can I secure them in a manner that I can afford, not just financially, but in terms of how do I make this practical on a Monday morning? I don't want to have to go through 28 steps and left clicking under my right knee while chanting <laughs> something under a full moon, right? So- right. <clears throat> If, if I'm going to encrypt my documents, it should be something that's relatively industry standard. There's a clear way that makes sense in terms of how to do it. Your security company knows how to support you if something goes wrong. Your backups be, are able to back up that information in a manner that you can get it back. So this is an insanely practical question when it comes to where is my data or where is the thing that allows me to trade and actually function as a business? And what can I do to either encrypt it or secure that? And I, think, I really, really like that. I, oh, go ahead, Chris. Sorry. No, sorry, sorry, man. I was going to say, I think that the, the problem that a lot of organizations have is they look at this, this problem and they're, they get so shell-shocked and overwhelmed mm -hmm. that they actually just mm -hmm. can't, don't even attempt to tackle it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there are some, you know, to, to add on to Nick's sort of, um, very practical answer there. I think there are some things you don't have to solve at all on day one, right? That's mm -hmm. a that's mm -hmm. that's that's probably some of the best advice I've ever had from someone who you know is is really 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 in, um, sort of in that uh, data security field. Is is you don't have to solve it on day one. Just get started, right? Because mm -hmm. as you start mm -hmm. getting started, um, you, you're going to start unpicking stuff, and eventually you'll get there. The second thing is the user your user base has to these folks have to be part of the journey right you can't just it doesn't matter how good the system or the solution is if 
you don't bring the users along, they're not going to be able to 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 adopt That's it, right. and they're not going to embrace that 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 change, and they're not going to use it. Right. Um, and right. I think that's that's a problem that a lot of organizations have made is they've invested, you know, countless dollars in 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 systems that can do everything, but they've forgotten about the folks who actually have to use it. Right. And, and the, if you don't get the adoption, uh, it's, it, you know, the project's going to fail. So bring the users along and help them sort of, you know, help guide them along the journey and help them inform the journey. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that goes right. a long way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, what you guys have said there makes makes complete sense. The idea of just take a blank sheet of paper, start talking about the data that really could impact your business, mm. how that data is created, who owns that data, what are your responsibilities for that data, and, and understanding what that all means without having the, you know, the user have to spin twice, click three times to do to do anything. Because the minute you put too many controls in place, um, Users are really good at trying to find ways to uh, to make their lives easier. Everybody's working fast and hard, and mm -hmm. and really, generally speaking, have the best intentions, uh, or their intentions are for the best of the company. They're all trying to do their jobs well, and if you put too many controls in place, that it's almost counter uh, counterproductive in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so, taking taking this idea of data. And then spinning it into privilege. So I'm 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 tailoring this conversation to the challenges that I see most. So understanding your data and then the privilege around data, both you know the management of the access to, also the creation of data. So what do you guys see um, as like that the 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 concept of principle of least privilege? How it really is applied practically uh, for organizations. Uh, Nicholas, what do you think? Again, it gets insanely practical. So what we find, and, and Chris and I find this in organizations, large and small, we have too many admins and too many super users, and mm. you don't need them. They, they make life easy, sure, but they also make it really easy for if any one of those accounts are compromised for you to lose everything. And it, it, it is a little bit of a pain, but if we have some disciplines, like we have the, you shouldn't have more than two accounts that have got admin or super user accounts. And an admin account should not be used for daily access of mm -hmm. anything. You mm -hmm. shouldn't be checking your mail with an account that has got global admins. And your other account so you've got two accounts, your one account you use for your day-to-day your -day staff in terms of administration, but not data access. Your other account should be an account that has got a password that's written down on a piece of paper or two pieces of paper and held in a secure location so that in case something goes wrong with that one account, you have a very analog way of getting that password back. And this aligns very much to having no standing admin access because what I've done with that is I've increased the cost of my attack. So mm -hmm. if I don't have an, an admin account that's easy to compromise, my attack has just become more expensive. And uh, let, let, me, let me just do a very human analogy there, Matt. So um, you've got your wallet in your pocket, right? 
what's well, sitting on my desk now, but yes, yes. <laughs> okay, but let's assume you're sitting in your house with your wallet in your pocket and there's cash in there. Let's assume there's, you got a, a $20 bill in there. So if I'm outside of your house on the outside of your fence and I want to take those $20 out of your wallet, there's a huge degree of friction I need to overcome to get into your premises, overwhelm you, get the wallet out of your pocket and take the money out. So the, the cost of attack for someone just strolling past your house is very high, right? But if you look at a, a well-motivated uh, SWAT team, well, their relative friction is low, right? Because they have guns and battering rams and explosives and they're like, oh yeah. It's an, experience, an, experience an experience doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So who are you defending yourself against? And if you increase the cost of attack against a script kiddie or just someone who's just surfing by and looking to attack you from an opportune point of view, and you've got really basic things in place, like um, I don't have an administrator account that's easy to compromise because I don't use it for daily access. I've got good hygiene. It's not logged in anywhere into a browser permanently. And I've got MFA on it. I've increased my cost to mm. get to that level of privilege in, in, in order to delete my data or, or um, exfiltrate or to leak data out of the company using an admin account. Obviously, um, having dodgy employees is another topic. So I well, think of course, one, of, of course. one of the things you've just talked through there is you, you've you've run along the sort of maturity metrics, right? Or, or matrix of of zero trust, right? Because if you think about it, Matt, if we take zero trust and and, and apply this to the question, um, you know, your 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 first and sort of probably the most important thing you can do is that separation of duty, right? Where you're let's make sure that your 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 folks have you know, a, a, a daily use account for their email and, and teams and all of those things. And then an, a separate account that has perhaps privileged access that they have to log into. And, and both of those accounts are, are, you know, MFA secured. If you then go, you know, a next step further, well, perhaps now they don't have two accounts, they have one account, but they have a privileged access role assigned to their account that they can then request and only use when they need it, right? Which is privileged access management. So now that's the next level because now by default, there aren't any admin accounts in the environment other than maybe some break glass accounts, right? And you can see how you can kind of build on this maturity. And for sure. a lot of organizations, especially smaller organizations, it doesn't make sense to go from the very first step of that ladder where maybe you have one or two admin ad administrators in your environment and they use their day-to-day -day accounts as admin accounts. It doesn't make sense to go from that to the whole hog of privileged access management where they have to check in and check out because again you you've created this administrative friction now that is just it, it makes their job so much more difficult but if you take them through the that journey you know over the course of some time they get used to the idea of it and it now becomes a much more easily adopted uh way or mechanism to do it right and i think the same happens um, with user access to data, because I think, again, smaller organizations suffer from yeah. the fact that, you know, uh, it's not, I say suffer, I don't mean that in, in a bad sense, but, you know, uh, a lot of folks wear different caps, right, in smaller organizations, you're perhaps you're the marketing person, but you're also responsible for IT or, or things like that. So just because of the very nature of how smaller organizations work, folks have access to stuff everywhere and that, that access isn't always reviewed and revoked and, and and changed and i think the best thing to do to be able to 
bring your accesses into line is to start with a process of just reviewing access. Even if it is only, you know, twice a year, have a look at right. the really important stuff that you have in your organization mm. and have a look at who has access to that stuff. Yeah. And do they require that access? And if not, you, you revoke it. And as you start doing that, immediately you're going to start, you know, aligning functions and, and, and mm. job, you know, profiles with, with the access that folks need becomes a lot easier to kind of manage it. Yeah, for sure. That's something that we've, uh, that's been a focus for the last couple of years for us is talking about entitlement and privilege management, just understanding yep. that access, because you have to understand kind of the, the current state to understand where you want to move to. 100%. Let me, let me yep. ask you real, real quick, uh, just mechanics technology question. Does Microsoft make this, this, um, privilege management easy or hard? I, I, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I mean, I, as a as a Mac guy, yeah, <laughs> um, we're all Mac the, guys. The Microsoft, right, right, yeah, exactly. Right. The Microsoft world can be a little bit confusing for me, um, right. but I, I know those that understand it, like the two of you, say, you know what, it it can be overwhelming, but it's uh, there's a straightforward methodology. So before I go down that rat hole, just is there an easy way in the Microsoft platform to for this uh, account management to happen? So I would say the sort of privileged account management and privileged access stuff, I would say yes. Um, and it's one of those things that, you know, it, for a lot of orgs, it depends on the life, it depends on the license tier, right? Um, you know, what we find sometimes is folks, uh, they, they're going to buy a license, uh, you know, in the Microsoft platform that enables something else that they need. And they, they get this functionality, but they're not actually using it because they don't understand it. Um, but I, you know, personally, and, and I'll let Nick possibly elaborate on this or, or jump in too, but my experience with this, and I'm not a true hardcore identity person. I haven't implemented, you know, every other privileged access management uh, environment that, that available. I've used a few of them as a user. Um, I, I think that the Microsoft solution is actually very, very um, sort of easy to, to use and, 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 and work compared to some of the others I've used. I have to agree with that. And Microsoft's documentation around this is, is actually, it's, it's very usable. And I, uh, what I can do, Matt, is for the, the sake of your show notes, I can leave you with uh, two URLs. And the, the one is a, a, a poster, which Microsoft makes available for Microsoft 365 Business Premium. And like Chris says, your capabilities are, are linked to your licensing. And sadly, there's nothing we can do to get away from that because there's there's no such thing as a as a free lunch. Because you know, even in your neighborhood, you still have to pay for a fence, right? Fences aren't free, <laughs> and security isn't right. free either. And the the other thing that's really useful in terms of getting from zero to somewhere is that Microsoft publishes these things called a, a rapid modernization plan. And that allows you to uh, do things like a ransomware recovery readiness because ransomware can happen to anyone, right? But how do you plan for mm -hmm. a response? They've got a plan for data protection. Uh, there's another one to explicitly validate trust for all access requests. So what does all of this mean? It's, it, it allows you to do something on day one, and it's it's a nice guide in terms of literally go to the following portal, look for these settings, have this kind of thing in place, and 
it's a, a guide that you can follow to actually go and implement these technologies that we've been talking about. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, I'll, uh, we'll include those in the uh, the posting. So I appreciate that, Nicholas. So you, you touched on something. I <clears throat> Go ahead. Sorry, Chris. No, I was going to say, I, I, one of the things that I, I think we're both quite passionate about here is, is sort of, you know, busting the myth that you can only be secure in the cloud if you have lots of money or if you yes. have a very large security budget. Because right. I, I you know, I, we would like to, and I think, uh, you know, certainly <laughs> there are a lot of people like that, but our mission or one of the things we, we're quite passionate about is making sure that folks understand, mm. regardless of uh, your business and, and, and regardless of really the cloud that you use, there's going to be something there that you can, if, you, if implemented right, will help you. Right, obviously, like MFA, like MFA. Um, we we spend most of our time in the Microsoft Cloud, so we obviously understand that a lot a lot uh, probably better than some of the others. But um, definitely, the the notion of you can only be secure with a large security budget is just not it's not true. True, it's not true. You're right because so many of these um, uh, what we talk about now and and understanding risk and understanding where the threats are coming from, it's process oriented. Mm -hmm. So technology supports those processes, helps implement the controls where there could be a cost associated with, but having the processes and correct processes in place is really, is it, it's a, it's a, there's a cost, a soft cost associated from maybe developing the processes internally, but uh hard cost, it doesn't, it doesn't have to come with a, a big dollar sign associated. Exactly. With and start with what you have. And you may find yeah. that after 12 or 18 or 24 months, you outgrow what you have, but that's a good time at then to, to be able to look at it and say, well, you know what? We now know what we need and the investment is worthwhile, mm. right? Instead of just running off and, and buying something that uh, you're not ready for, or you may not need right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I also, if, if I may, Dan, I think one of the things that we can help to make this process less overwhelming is what a lot of our customers just need is some literacy. And by some literacy, we just want to be able to understand the nature of the problem that we're solving. We want to be able to articulate that we want a risk appropriate defense, and we want to increase the cost of our attack. And we want to have a security literate person like yourselves guide us through, well, what does this mean practically? And what does this mean from a user training point of view? And Everything starts with an assessment. So how do I know what I have? How do I know mm -hmm. what I should secure? And how do I know that, oh, we said assume breach, right? So how do I know that I'm even safe today? And a lot of these things are just super, super practical. Like, well, if you've got antivirus installed, make sure it's up to date. Make sure that you patch your stuff. Make sure that if you have something that generates a log, somebody's reading that log. And a, a lot of this for me, boils down to as a business owner, you want to have enough language to be able to talk security. Security from a business process outcomes point of view, what do I need to do to run my business? And talk to someone like yourself to go and what do I need to implement on a Monday morning? Yep, yep. So uh, that's really great stuff. Um, it's it's interesting because as I'm sitting here, the conversation's going on and I'm, I'm learning a ton. I'm also thinking, you know what, these... This idea of zero trust, it's it's not far afield from what we're doing already today. It's yeah. it's really the you know, the things that we talk about, we being the collective we in the industry, mm -hmm. uh, we talk about um, 
as important steps, MFA, backing up data, you know, managing accounts properly, et cetera, understanding where your data is, understanding the nature of your data. These are all, uh, you know, controls, processes uh, that we've been talking about that that organizations should be doing. Zero Trust is just wrapping a bow around that and, yeah. and really implementing it as a discipline, right? As a doctrine, like you said, um, instead of it exactly. being, you know, my MFA sits over here and my, you know, backup sits over here. It's all wrapped together in a single concept of zero trust. What, I'd what, like to argue that just like you don't go into business without having a plan of some sort, right? you shouldn't run a business without having a security defense of some sort. And zero trust gives us that plan as a point of departure. That's great. That's great. And it really, it really highlights the point of if you get a phone call from a sales guy saying, we want to sell you zero trust, you know, be very suspect because yeah. really zero trust is not a thing. It's, it's not a, one it's a, product. It's a doctorate. That's right. And you, That's you right. cannot be zero trust compliant by buying a single product that solves a niche thing. That's brilliant. That's great. Um, so I, I could talk about this for another hour, but uh, I think people would start to tune out. Um, so uh, this has been really, really good, guys. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, one, I, I can't, I can't leave on this note. One last piece to this, and it's kind of, you know, this this concept of assume breach, um, mm. and just how you deal with the, you know, the the God forbid the the end state where somebody's in your environment stealing your data. Let's maybe Chris take a couple of minutes just to talk about incident response and and really some of the best practices that you've seen maybe as it applies to to organizations. Sure. Yeah. Look, I think we often talk about um, and talk to our customers about you know be ready and and make sure you have a plan and and <laughs> this is going to happen to you. You need to be ready. Um, but very very rarely have we kind of had to dig into okay, well, what does that plan entail, right? Um, certainly on our show, we've talked about it and 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 we it dawned on me a while back is that we talk to listeners all the time about this whole like be ready, be ready, but there's there's never a plan. So I love the question because I think that one of the probably the most important thing that you can do is as we've talked about is is actually just have a plan, right? Any plan is better than no plan. Um, you know right. i've um I've personally had had customers. Um, you know, call me or reach out to me when when something's gone wrong and said, okay, well, help. Like, what do we do, right? Um, well, you gotta you gotta think about um, have that plan from all aspects. T technically, understand how your backups, where your backups are, how those things can be accessed. Make sure that you can access them, right? All of that sort of recoverability stuff that that Nick was talking about. That's really really important to be part of that plan. But you also need to think about the soft. Um, you know, the human side of that plan, right? Who are you going to call? Um, who do you have some sort of retainer or SLA um, arrangement or agreement with with a security vendor uh, to, to help you with your incident response? Um, because you want to make sure that if you if you have something like that in place, that you know who to call, how to reach out to those folks and how to engage with them quickly. Um, whether you even want to do that, right? Um, and, and what is the threshold for that? Because again, not all attacks or incidents are the same. Um, you know, if someone's left their, their laptop at the pub um, because they've had a too, one too many beers on a Friday night, like 
that's an incident, but you may not want to, you know, call in uh, an incident right. response firm for that, right? But when you when you find that, you know, perhaps all of a sudden you have three hundred privileged users being created in your in in your directory, yeah, maybe you've got someone trying to persist there, and you want to try and figure figure that out. So, you know, all of those things need to be sort of thought through. Um, I think one of the best things that you can do as an organization to 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 figure out how ready you or how prepared you are is have a tabletop exercise and it doesn't have to be something 100%. that is yeah it, it doesn't have to be something that is super formal and and led by a firm just do it yourself just get all of the people the relevant stakeholders into a room and play out the scenario and within 10 minutes you will know whether this is something that you need to dig into some more or whether this is something that you're going to be able to actually, you know, a storm that you're going to be able to weather, right? To use the right. the, the, the theme of the show here. Um, right, right. That's, to me, that, that that's like the key thing is just have a tabletop exercise and, and go from there because I think it will very quickly I, make itself clear to you. Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump in there, uh, Nicholas, for a second. Um, you're you're 100% spot on and we've we've really spent a lot of time with our clients uh and conversations that we've had just with people in general that mm. that idea of having a plan having a plan is better than not of course always 100% of the time mm. um but just running through some exercises the tabletop as you call it because that's what the industry does um where you get in a room and you walk through some scenarios uh when we lead these tabletops um you know we we ask that the senior executives that even to the CEO join the tabletop hmm. and 100% of the time they're enlightening it, it, the, the team is engaged as, as painful as it seems to start. Like when we, when we set hmm. these up, they're like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to talk to security knobs for an hour. But yeah, 100% <laughs> of the time it's like, Oh, right. That we should be doing that. Oh, right. If our hmm. network is down, and we're planning on using Slack to have conversations when we have a problem and it's not available. What do we do? Like there's all these nuances that that just running through the plan, maybe yeah. annually, gives you an opportunity to to improve it for sure. For sure. Yeah. Nicholas, I don't know if there's anything you need to add to that. No, no. I, <laughs> I, I, absolutely right. Having the business involved and creating that level of literacy is is it invaluable. You can't replace the, you can't get the stuff out of a book. Once you've actually had to think through it at least once, mm. your eyes are opened and you, you build that level of literacy and that expectation of, oh, that the business needs to understand this. Yeah, and, and along that li lines of literacy, um, you know, we, there's been this push for the last five years on security awareness training and, and all these platforms. And they're great. They really do help organizations understand kind of the threats they face, the, 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 the up, you know, the emerging threats, et cetera. But that tabletop exercise in incident response, again, the concept of assume breach inside a zero trust, like that training might be more valuable than all that, uh, you know, digitally delivered training that you have that, that the awareness, the intelligence, the literacy that's developed through those tabletop exercises, um, mm. It's really top notch. It's it's at the highest level of of, of value. That's for sure, guys. Great. We're we're uh, we've had a great conversation. Um, I'm going to have to stop us though at some point here. But I do want to ask you both maybe the most important question of the day. As we finish every one of our calls um, or every one of our podcasts, we ask our guests to provide us a, an idea of some place they they'd love to go on the water. 
maybe grab that beer once they've you know validated that they are who they are and that they're old enough to drink beer. Um, where would you like to, where do you guys like to go? Nicholas, why don't you give us a start? I love food. And um, if you ever bump into me, you'll, you'll notice that I'm not the smallest person in the room. And uh, <laughs> that, that comes with a love and appreciation for food. I love the burger and lobster in Cape Town. I'm in Cape Town in South Africa. We have more burger joints and good beer and good wine than uh, we could talk about comfortably in an hour. So I'm going to nominate a place called Burger and Lobster because they do both of those, burger and lobster, and both are amazing. And uh, you should come check that out. Well, we're going to drop a pin on it on our map on our website so people will know where it is when they come to Cape Town. I appreciate that. Chris, what about you? Where do you like to go? You know, I, 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 this is an interesting one because I, I have there are a few, but I, I have to say I think the probably the best place and and I I spent a, a lot of time um, living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. I have to say, just Bondi Beach. Um, you know, there there's there's a lot of great sort of eateries and stuff uh, out there. But probably the best thing to do is just get some fish and chips and just sit on the beach and and you know just watch the waves. That's you know, I, yeah, I think, perfect. Um, it's something that I just yeah, I love doing it. My dad. And I have this sort of thing that we do and it, you know, it's, it's great. So oh, that beach great. would be the that's answer. Great. Yeah. Perfect. Well, those are uh, two great suggestions and uh, certainly an international flair to them. So that's the, that's really, uh, really, really great. More importantly, guys, I really appreciate the time uh, this afternoon, this evening, this morning, um, all around the world. Um, really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Um, hope we can do it again. Absolutely, man. Thanks so much for having us. Harbor's innovative processes are based on industry standard frameworks that are tailored to meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. We would also like to thank Tom Marshall for the original music. Yes, that Tom Marshall from Fish fame. Harbor's portfolio of services is designed to meet the cybersecurity needs of small and medium enterprises. We offer a range of services from cyber risk advisory to VCSO consulting to meet specific security requirements without putting a strain on your technology budget. If you like what you heard here, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. We release new podcasts every other week and are available on Spotify and Apple. You can reach us through our website if you have additional questions or suggest a great harbor we should mention on our next show. 